time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. Soon they saw a little way ahead of them a pleasant-looking field called Bypath Meadows. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. We're going to be sharing with you more today from the book The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, edited by C.J. Lovick, and published by Crossway Publishers. I need to share that information with you because we're reading copyrighted material. With me in the studio again today is Pastor Jim Kerwin from Chesapeake, Virginia. It's always a wonderful, wonderful gift to have Jim come and share. So, Jim, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. We're eager to get right into this story today. Uh, But before I do, let me just invite you to go to nationalprayerchapel.com. It's streaming live there. You can see the video of the production. And also there you'll find podcasts done by Pastor Jim Kerwin. You'll find blogs there. You'll find videos on the Book of Romans. You'll find sermons. You'll find all kinds of resources that will help you in this journey. The purpose of this broadcast is to help you in a very practical way move out of the city of destruction toward the celestial city. And we hope to meet you there. If we don't meet you on this side, we hope to meet you on the other side and have you tell us that your journey was in some way impacted by Pilgrim's Progress. This book was written in 1678 or published in 1678, It's been on the bestseller list for Christians for centuries. Today, it's forgotten. I ask many Christians, have you ever heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress? And they shake their heads and say, no, that's not one I remember. Is it recent? No, it's not recent. It's an old one and a good one. But through the years... It has been considered the number one allegory by secular scholars as well, number one in the English language. And John Bunyan was not a highly educated man. He had only a few years of education, but he was educated by the Holy Spirit. His work, by the way, Jim, I don't know if you know this, do you know how he supported his family while he was in prison? He manufactured something by hand in the in the cell, but I can't remember what it was. He hand-wove uh, shoelaces. And in the weaving of those shoelaces, he would give them then to his wife, who would take them and sell them. And by that means, they supported their family. His trade was that of a tinker, meaning he mended pots and pans a dirty job, a lowly job, a door-to-door job. But his heart was in the preaching of the gospel, and for 12 years he suffered in prison because of his proclamation of the gospel without a license. So you're welcome to go to nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find those resources. You'll also find directions 
or how to come to the new location for the National Prayer Chapel. We had our first meeting last night. Uh, Pastor Jim presented a message on John the Baptist. Maybe we'll get a part of that today as we talk about repentance. You're also welcome to shoot me an email at pastorray at nationalprayerchapel.com or to call me on a private cell number, 703-672-1203. That number again, 703-672-1203. Or you can call us live in the studio, 877-534-0780. So let's go right to the book. Uh, Some background for you. They left the straight and narrow path, Christian and hopeful. They left the straight and narrow, and they went to Bypath Meadow because it was an easier walk on their feet. They thought it was too hard walking on that rough road. And so they got off the road and then discovered to their sorrow that they were led astray. And they decide to go back to where they had left the true path. We were talking about that yesterday, Pastor Jim. It's not ever a shortcut to leave the path. No, and there's not a shortcut to get back to it. You have to go back to where you started. That's exactly right. Where you left the path. Mm Mm-hmm. And you have to face those same issues all over again. Except as we'll learn today as we read, going back is always more difficult than leaving. (laughs) The water is high and the danger is extreme. It's much easier to do it God's way the first time. It's harder the second time around. That's right. So let's begin reading on page 160 of Pilgrim's Progress. Just then, they heard an encouraging voice say, Set your heart toward the highway, even the way that you went. Turn again. But by this time, the waters had risen, making it very dangerous to go back the way they had come. I thought that it is easier to go out of the way that we are on than to go back unto it where we're off the way. And that's Bunyan's comment, because recall all this is in the context of Bunyan having a dream where all these characters are having these experiences. But despite the risk, they began tracing their steps back to where they had first entered the wrong path. After nearly a dozen near drownings, and because of the darkness made it impossible to see anything, they decided to find a place of shelter where they could wait out the storm until daybreak. After they had found a suitable shelter, they soon fell asleep in utter exhaustion. Now I want to stop there, Jim there's something very clear that we need to say. 
it's always more difficult to go back to the path than it was to leave the path. For some reason, Satan has put a certain excitement into the journey away from the path. And we said yesterday, the path is always the same. It is a straight and narrow path, and the path's name is Jesus Christ. So it's always with a sense of eating the forbidden fruit. There's an excitement that accompanies leaving the path. When you decide that the way is too hard, and you know that you have done wrong, and you decide to return, it is always more difficult to return than it was to leave. I think you could liken that to the right path being at a high elevation and any other path being lower than that. It's always easier to go downhill. When you want to return to the path that's at the higher elevation, you really have to work hard in order to reach the point where you were before. It's always easier to go up, uh, easier to go down than it is to go up. Yes. And then they find that they're exhausted and they make another poor decision. They make a decision to rest on the devil's ground. Uh, But they don't know yet that it's the devil's ground. But they know that it's not the ground of the path. So all ground that is not on the path is the devil's ground. That we have to know with absolute certainty even though it might be a very pleasant place. It is still the devil's ground. And when you're on the devil's ground, he has the right to do certain things in your life that he cannot do when you're on the path. So they find a shelter, but not under the wing of God. And they try to wait out the storm until daybreak. What they didn't realize is that you cannot wait out the devil's storms. It's not going to be easier tomorrow. Tomorrow will only become more difficult. So in their exhaustion, they sleep. And not far from that place where they lay sleeping stood a castle called Doubting Castle. The owner of this castle was giant despair. And it was on his grounds that they're now sleeping. When giant despair got up in the early morning and began walking up and down in his fields, he came across Christian and hopeful asleep on his ground. With a grim and surly voice, he told them to awake and ask them who they were and what they were doing on his property. They told him they were pilgrims and that they had lost their way. Then said the giant, This night you have trespassed on my property by trampling and laying on my grounds, and therefore you must come along with me. So they were forced to go because he was stronger than they. The pilgrims also had little to say for themselves, knowing that they were at fault. When you begin to argue with the devil, he is going to drag you away. 
and your guilt will only contribute to that. Hmm? That's exactly right. I wonder today, as you're listening to this, are you on the path? And we spoke about this yesterday. Many times when we get off the path, we'll take that road, then we'll take another road, then we'll take another road until finally we could never retrace our steps back. So how do we get back on the path? Well, before we answer that question, I want you to see what happens to them. Page 162. The giant, therefore, drove them before him and forced them into his castle, where Christian and Hopeful soon found themselves in a dark, nasty, stinking dungeon. Here they lay from Wednesday morning till Saturday night without one bit of bread or drop of water or ray of light or anyone to inquire about them. So Christian and Hopeful found themselves far from friends and acquaintances in a hopeless and pitiable condition. You know, as I read that, I'm just hearing in the Spirit, some of you who are listening to this broadcast are in that dungeon today. You are in a pitiable condition. You're miserable in your life. You know you're walking in a path that is not that of the righteous Lord. If I could speak with you personally and ask you the question, are you on the path? You would honestly answer, no, I'm not on the path. I'm in the dungeon. I want to encourage you today to listen carefully because today you will hear how to be released from that dungeon. You probably have endured much now of what they are going to endure. Giant Despair had a wife whose name was Distrust. Now we have quite a combination. We have Distrust sleeping with Despair. All in the residence of Doubting Castle. And I want to suggest, Bunyan doesn't, but I want to suggest that a sister-in-law lives with them. (laughs) You decided she's a sister-in-law. She's a (laughs) sister-in-law. And the sister-in-law's name is Accusation. Accusation, distrust, they go very well with this giant despair. When he had gone to bed, he told his wife that he had taken a couple of prisoners and cast them into his dungeon for trespassing on his grounds. Then he asked her what she thought he should do to them. Distrust inquired about the prisoners' identities, their homeland and destination. He told them they were pilgrims bound for the celestial city. Well, she advised him then to beat them without mercy when he arose in the morning. The next morning, when Giant Despair arose, he went out and found a short, thick club made from a crab tree. Then he went down into the dungeon where Christian and Hopeful were imprisoned, and there he began berating them and ranting at them as if they were dogs. 
Christian and Hopeful did not say a word in their defense. Then Giant Despair pounced upon them and beat them mercilessly. The beating was so bad that it was finally over, they were unable to help themselves or even get up off the dungeon's cold stone floor. Feeling satisfied with the torment he had inflicted, Giant Despair withdrew, leaving the two prisoners to console each other in their misery, to mourn the rest of their days with sighs and bitter lamentations in their distress. What's so curious to me about all of this is that their lamentations and their distress did not in any way truly comfort their hearts and they were not able to overcome the giant by complaining. And I suspect that some of you who find yourselves in that dungeon, beat up, condemning yourself, feeling sorry for yourself, moaning and groaning and crying, and yet you find absolutely no relief. You find no deliverance. You are still bound under the power and authority of giant despair. The next night, distrust, discovering that the prisoners were still alive, advised giant despair to counsel them to take their own lives. So when morning came, the giant went to them in a surly manner as before. Seeing that they were very sore from the previous day's beatings, he told them that since they were never likely to come out of that dungeon, their only way of escape would be to make an end of themselves with either knife, rope, or poison. For why, he said, should you choose life, seeing it is attended with so much bitterness? But they asked him instead to let them go. Hearing their humble request, he scowled and rushed to make an end of them himself. Again, I want to note, you can ask despair to leave. You can command despair to leave. You can even pray and say, I bind despair in the name of Jesus, be gone. And all the giant will do is laugh at you. He will not leave at your command, and he will not release you at your request. He holds you prisoner in that dungeon, and you cannot convince him or command him in such a manner that he will release you. You are his prisoner by right because you slept on the devil's ground. You left the way. Never will he direct you back to the path, and never will he release you. Hearing their humble request, he scowled and rushed to make an end of them himself. However, before he could lay hands upon them, he fell into one of his fits. It happened occasionally that in sunshiny weather, Giant Despair 
lost for a time the use of his hand. Being thus afflicted, at this time the giant withdrew and left them to consider their predicament. Would you say that was the first sign of hope, Jim? Absolutely. Every once in a while, somebody in this state, I guess the, the best way to say it is they have, they have a good day. It's like the clouds part for a little bit. That's a time for action, as we'll see, as the, as the brothers here see in retrospect, but they don't act on it at that point in time. Then the prisoners considered whether it was best to take his counsel or not. And this is what they said to each other. Brother, said Christian, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I do not know which is best, to live like this or to die and escape this misery. My soul chooseth strangling rather than life, and the grave seems more desirable than this dungeon. Shall we be ruled by this giant? Hopeful suggested, Indeed, our present condition is dreadful, and death would be a relief. But still, let us consider that the Lord of the country to which we are going has said, You shall do no murder. And if not to another man, how much more than are we forbidden to take the giant's counsel to kill ourselves? Besides, he who kills another can only commit murder upon a body, but for someone to kill himself is to kill body and soul at the same time. Besides, my brother, you talk about the ease of the grave, but have you forgotten the hell to which murderers go? For no murderer has eternal life. And let us consider again that the outcome of this is not in the hands of giant despair. Other prisoners like us, as far as I can tell, who have been captured by the giant have managed to escape. Who knows but that God, who made the world, may soon cause giant despair to die, or that the giant may forget to lock us in, or that he may have another one of his fits and lose the use of his limbs. If that ever happens again, I am determined to gather all my courage and try my utmost to escape. I was a fool not to attempt an escape during the first fit. So, my brother, let us be patient and endure for a while longer. The time may come and we have an opportunity to escape, but let's not murder ourselves. Hopeful's words help calm Christian's mind. And so they continued together in the dark that day in their sad and doleful condition. That evening, the giant went down into the dungeon again to see if his prisoners had taken his counsel, but he found them alive, though barely. Since the prisoners had had no bread or water and were badly wounded from their beatings, they could do little but breathe. Their weak breath was all the sign of life needed to send the giant into a frenzy of rage. And he told them that since they had disobeyed his counsel, it would be worse for them than if they had never been born. At this, they trembled greatly, and Christian fell into a faint. When he recovered, they renewed their discourse about the giant's counsel and whether they should take it or not. Christian seemed inclined toward accepting the giant's advice, but Hopeful was not willing and made his second reply to Christian as follows. My brother, he said, don't you remember how valiant you have been in the past? Apollyon could not crush you, 
nor were you defeated by all the things you heard, saw, or felt in the valley of the shadow of death. Consider all the hardship, terror, and bewilderment you have already gone through, and now you're full of fear. Don't you see that though I am a far weaker man than you by nature, I inhabit this dungeon with you? The giant has wounded me as well as you, and has cut off my bread and water as well as yours. I also mourn without the light. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how you conducted yourself in front of the men at Vanity Fair and were afraid neither of the chain nor the cage nor even of a bloody death. So let us, at least to avoid this shame that is unbecoming of a Christian, bear this with patience as well as we can. And that same night, as giant despair went to bed, his wife asked him about the prisoners. If they had taken his counsel, he replied, they are sturdy rogues. They would rather endure tremendous hardships than to do away with themselves. Distrust replied, take them into the castle yard tomorrow and show them the bones and the skulls of those whom you have already killed. Make them believe that before the week's end you will tear them in pieces just as you have done to their fellows before them. So when morning came, the giant took his prisoners into the castle yard and showed them the bones and skulls according to his wife's instructions. These, said he, were pilgrims just as you are, and they trespassed on my grounds just as you have done. When I saw fit, I tore them in pieces. I will do the same to you within ten days." Go now, get back to your den. With that, he beat them all the way down to the dungeon where they lay all day that Saturday in their misery as they had done before. Now when night had fallen and when distrust and her husband had gone to bed, they resumed their conversation about the prisoners. The old giant wondered why he could not by his blows or his counsel bring Christian and hopeful to an end. His wife replied, I fear that they live in hope that someone will come and rescue them, or perhaps they have picklocks hidden by which they hope to escape. Do you think so, my dear? asked the giant. I will search them in the morning. Around midnight, Christian and hopeful began to pray and continued till almost the break of day. Let's stop there, Jim, and let's talk about the way back. As they began to pray, he's not real clear about what the content of that prayer is, but you and I both know the content of that prayer had to focus around returning to the path. And in Scripture, there's one word that describes the process by which we return. And that is repentance. Talk to us about your understanding of repentance from Scripture. Repentance on, it can be taken on many levels, but the, the most obvious one here is to turn around and go back the, uh, 180 degrees from where you are go back to the place that you should be going in the direction you should be going. So is that a a theme of Scripture? All the way through, especially 
in the New Testament, as we were seeing last night, from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew clear into the book of Revelation, Jesus continues to encourage people, to demand people repent. It's the message of the apostles. And when Jesus is seen again in the book of Revelation, he's still telling his churches, repent. In fact, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. There's something about that word zeal when it's applied to repentance that I wish we had seen in the case of Christian and hopeful. If on that night, when they were nearly drowned a dozen times, when they were stumbling in the dark, if they had just continued on a little farther, they probably would have made it back to the stile that got them over the fence and back onto the path. But in their return, they knew that they needed to return. There was just that zeal lacking that would keep them going a little longer. That's why they finally laid down in a shelter and waited for the morning. And by then, it was too late. They were captives of despair. Jim, take a few minutes and walk us through your understanding of the angel of the church of Laodicea. All right. That's found in Revelation, the third chapter, begins with verse 14. All right. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. That's an interesting statement in and of itself. Jesus is saying to believers, golly, I wish you would make up your mind. I prefer you to be cold than what you are right now, lukewarm. Of course, what he'd really prefer is for us to be hot, but at least being cold means that there's a decision that's been made and you're not fooling yourself and you're not trying to fool anyone else. He goes on, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will, and the Greek says, vomit you out of my mouth. And there's a because. And Jesus says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth because, and here is the New Testament's one teaching on positive confession. So listen up. If you like positive confession, here are Jesus' exact words about it. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So to the positive confession people, Jesus is making a very negative confession, and he said, nothing of the sort, all of this stuff that you pretend to say, to speak, your spiritual condition is quite the opposite. So today we have many Christians being taught that they should make positive confession, and that if they don't make that positive confession, they will not receive. It's almost as though witchcraft is being employed. If I say enough times, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich, I, it's the law of attraction that they speak of. I will attract wealth to myself. That's witchcraft, first of all. Mm-hmm. It's not what the Scriptures teach. 
No, it's not. And see how Jesus sets them right. We come back to this word repentance. First of all, he says, you want to talk about wealth and money and possessions and so forth. In your wretchedness, in your misery, in your poverty, in your blindness, in your nakedness, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, here Jesus is saying this is something that you have to buy. And the question then comes up, well, how much does it cost? And what it costs you is everything. You have to leave behind the the lie that you can speak these things into existence. You need to repent. You need to get down on the level where Jesus says, this is reality. This is the nitty-gritty. You need to confess with, you know, it's a very positive confession if Jesus tells you to make it, to say, Lord, I am wretched. I am miserable. I am poor. I am blind and I'm naked. And that's a positive confession because to confess in the Greek, what it means is to say the same thing as. And if you want a a positive confession, you confess the same thing that Jesus confesses. You say the same thing about yourself that he says about you. And that's off to a very positive start. But he says, buy, it means it's going to cost you everything. And then comes that verse that I was quoting before, those whom I love, I reprove. And that word in the Greek is the same word that gets translated as convict. Let's come back just for a minute, though, to this gold issue. Mm. Because the natural flesh is saying, I have gold, I have wealth, I have, and we put a picture of a car on a refrigerator and say, I have that new Mercedes-Benz. I have it. It belongs to me. And we're taught in the modern church of positive thinking that we're then attracting that to ourself, and it has to come to us. But you're saying that we need to instead confess that we're poor, that we're wretched, that we're blind, that we're naked, and we buy gold. How do you buy gold, Jim? In buying gold and having it refined, what you're doing is there's you, you're confessing that there's only one thing worth having, and that is the presence of and the pleasure of Almighty God. Everything else passes away. Everything else burns up. Everything else is of this world. The gold that you want to buy is God himself, is Jesus Christ. He's the treasure hidden in the field. He's the pearl of great price. He is the thing that you give up everything to have. So we could say, I believe here, that Christian and hopeful, as they're in the giant's dungeon, and they begin to turn their hearts back toward the path, 
they are being refined. Would that be accurate? That's certainly part of the process. Um, In their suffering, they are learning something of God and his ways, and when they come out, they're not going to get off the path again. They're going to, to value far more God's instructions, God's counsel, and a little bit of sore feet is not going to keep them from, not going to make them stray. So you have on one side the devil's method, which is positive affirmations. You have on the other side God's method, which is humble confession of my true condition, which we call repentance, Mm -hmm. the acknowledgement of my true condition. And then we're given white clothes to wear, which Revelation also tells us are the righteous acts of the saints. So in other words, after we have made that positive confession of wretched, poor, miserable, and we begin that refining process, and they're doing that through the hours of the night as they're praying, they are then given righteous acts to perform, and it's these righteous acts that they are going to perform that will actually bring the deliverance of God out of that dungeon. Hmm, interesting point. So they're given white clothes to wear to cover their nakedness and then salve to put on their eyes so they can see. And actually they're about to have an eye salve moment. <laughs> yes, they are. Now, continue with this, with this passage, though. Let's press further. All right. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Be zealous. Uh, I think the King James says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. What does it mean to you, Jim, when it says, here I stand, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens it, or opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What's that mean to you? Anytime I find the phrase at the door in Scripture, and by extension I would assume that it's this passage too, every time it has to do with impending judgment and danger. And I think here is a case where there's impending danger because if these people continue on the path that they're on with all their positive confession living in their lukewarmness, living in their self-made Christianity, then they're going to have to stand before God and answer for what they've done. But anybody who hears the knocking, anybody who says, yes, Lord, I agree with you, I say the same thing, I confess what you're confessing, that even if I've managed to attain all of these worldly things, inside I'm empty and wretched and miserable and lacking the life of God. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, sup with him and he with me. Christian, what Jesus is talking about and Taking this in context, this is written to Christians. Now, I know we use this as a salvation verse, and I won't get into that, but 
This is written to Christians, and Christian Jesus is saying, if you will confess the same thing, if you will buy what he says to buy, if you will obey him, that's what it means to hear his voice, then the fellowship that you have been lacking for so long, the fellowship that you used to have, the fellowship that you long for, will be restored, and Jesus will come in, and you will know his presence and his pleasure once more. I want to put it a slightly different way, but say the same thing. You must engage God according to his path, not according to your path. You can pray, you can command, you can bind, you can make positive confession, and nothing will happen in your life. Nothing, that is, until you begin to engage God by God's rules. Wait, you mean we have to do it God's way? You have to confess and come in agreement with God regarding your condition. And as you begin to agree with God, yes, I am blind. Yes, I am naked. Yes, this is who I am. And I do desire gold. So, Lord, I agree with you refining me. And in that process of agreeing with God and giving him permission to do whatever he needs to do in your life, the prison doors will open. Now, some of you, God has not spoken to you or moved in your life for many years because you have tried to do it your way. You have to do it God's way. When you do it God's way, suddenly the sparks begin to fly, the action begins to crank up, you know God's will, you are walking through, and you are now coming back into fellowship. Literally, the book that we're reading, Pilgrim's Progress, going back to the path, repenting and going back and agreeing that they got off the path, even considering suicide. And many of you, I'm sure, have at some point in your life considered suicide because you've been so miserable and you've said it's not worth living. Why should I go on? This is hopeless. Well, all of that has to be laid down and our life given over to Jesus, and then he comes and fellowships with us. He walks with us. Now, I want to have Eric play a song for us today, Then the Red Sea Parted, because the Red Sea is going to part for Christian and for hopeful. And I pray the Red Sea is about ready to part for you. Dark forces came behind To the left and right The desert brought panic to their minds The evil of that hour Was stronger than the sun That beat on them With nowhere left to run The chariots of Egypt Drew nearer 
as they cried. Yet Moses stood there calmly with a fearless faith inside. He said, There is a power far greater than the sword. Stand still and you will witness a mighty salvation from our Lord.
have a great fear for you. My great fear is that you are off the path, that you are comfortable being off of the path because it seems to be a smoother way. And you will lay down and sleep because of your difficulties, exhausted by the journey, and be drug away by the giant, for it is his land, and you are trespassing in that land. And some of you have become comfortable taking different bypaths, byways, always calling yourself a Christian, always seeking after that prosperity and that abundant life, satisfying yourself with a visit to church when you have a convenient moment, or perhaps going every week. But you know that your heart is not right with Jesus. You know you are off the path, and yet your pride holds you until you finally throw up your hands and you say, I don't even know how to get back to the path. And as one dear young person said to me, I can try as hard as I want. I know I can never get back. I know I can never follow Jesus. I know I can't go to heaven. So I'm not going to sin against God especially, but I'm just going to live my life. A hopelessness sets in. This passage Once more in the book of Revelation, the third chapter, I want to read for you verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is not going to be content with you wandering in the devil's land, being caught by the giant despair. He wants to completely and totally deliver you, and he wants you to put forth the effort to overcome and get back to the way. Almost every time I speak with a Christian, I ask them the question, are you right with Jesus? Or are there things in your life that you know are rebellion against God? It is the rare Christian who ever says to me, I am walking clean before God with no known sin in my life. Almost every Christian confesses. Yes, I have sin in my life, but I'm saved. Now, that's an oxymoron. You cannot have sin in your life and be saved. You cannot enter into Jesus Christ with filth and uncleanness, and that's what the Scripture calls rebellion against God. So today, will you head back home? Anything you want to add, Jim, before we close today? I'm glad that you brought up verses 21 and 22. If you will act on what you are hearing, if you will come back to the path, if you will follow after Jesus with all your heart, whatever it costs, 
whatever it takes, whatever you have to buy from him, the eternal consequences of that you will never, ever regret. And what Jesus is saying here, he says, I'm saying to all the churches, I'm saying to every Christian, overcome by the power of the blood of Jesus. Now let me pray for you. Almighty God, I know that it is decision time for many who are listening to this broadcast. Will they turn today and seek you with all of their heart and become serious about walking holy before you? I pray now you will help them in that decision. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. With great joy Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of his glory with